more results and just have more fun in their life and business. Bring me the energy, all right? choose will determine what you people to say yes because we need that yes in business and life and our relationships we have to learn to negotiate to get other people to agree and say yes so that we can make money and so that we can move forward as an entrepreneur today we're going to teach you how to negotiate like a master and get people to say yes let's bring in the show this is the entrepreneur underdog Business secrets to help doubted entrepreneurs triumph. The Underdog Entrepreneur is where we use fast-acting shortcuts to help underdog entrepreneurs make more money, have a bigger impact, and live a better lifestyle so that they can prove their haters wrong. And now, your host, Roy Red. Roy Red. Hi, everybody. It's Roy Red, five-time best-selling author, internationally recognized speaker, and your host of this show. The Entrepreneur Underdog, where we help underdog entrepreneurs with fast-assing secrets so they can win in life and business, so they can prove their haters wrong in a positive way. Today, we have Christine McKay, who's going to be teaching us how to master the art of negotiation so that we can get people to say yes and actually close deals, actually sell our products, actually get on stages, actually get people to buy our books, actually get people to buy what we're doing to help save the world. Christine, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It is such an honor to be here. So excited to meet you. <laughs> I'm happy you came on. We had a little bit of technical difficulties. That's why we got on late, but we made it because we problem solved, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we negotiated with the technology. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> So real quick, real quick, real quick, Christine, uh, tell the people who you are, what you do, and um, about your company. Sure. So I'm a business negotiation strategist. I've been doing negotiations for almost 30 years now. I hate mm -hmm. to admit that, but it's true. Um, I started out doing international mergers and acquisitions in Southeast Asia and then did a lot of work in Eastern and Western Europe. And I've negotiated with almost half the Fortune 500 and 53 countries. But like your show, The Entrepreneur Underdog, I realized throughout my career of mm -hmm. negotiating on behalf of larger companies, 
what a disadvantage smaller and mid-sized companies feel and experience at the negotiation table. So yeah. I launched Ben Negotiation out of a passion for helping those people elevate their negotiation skills. And so that's what we do. We, we do that by doing training programs and we also provide negotiation services because some people just hate the idea of negotiating. So we yeah. go do it for them. Yeah. I always tell the story about how when I signed my first pro athlete and we asked them for 10 grand a month, I almost threw up just asking him and, you know, somehow we got through it and he said yes, but I was literally, my stomach <laughs> was hurting so bad. <laughs> and even the, my business partner who was on the other side, when he walked out was like, yo, I almost threw up. <laughs> we both, <laughs> it's like a really hard thing to do. Um, I always say that to master success in anything, you have to master the internal game and then how you communicate. Um, Absolutely. Talk about that internal game. How do you stay stoic in the moment and um, and negotiate when you're negotiating? Well, I love that, and and you'll appreciate that. Um, Lee Steinberg, who is the the real Jerry Maguire, is uh, scheduled to be interviewed by me on my show on my podcast coming up soon. So, wow. as a sport agent, as the father of sports agency. I thought you'd appreciate that. Um, in terms of kind of staying um, stoic in the moment, that's a great word because in the thing, one of the things that messes with a lot of people when they're negotiating is that they get in their own head. And I always say that the hardest part of any negotiation happens between our ears. And we tell ourselves something. So as soon as we want something, our emotions are fully engaged. Our emotion engages before our logic does. And so once we say, I want this, and then we start, then we start this process of going, oh my gosh, but if I ask for it, what are they going to think of me? What are they going to say? What are they going to do? And we all become afraid to ask for what we want at any given moment in time where we've all experienced this, regardless of who we are or what our life experiences have been. We all of us at times are afraid to ask for what we want and we convince ourselves to ask for something less. Yeah. And, you know, in my experience, I have an unusual background um, and, you know, I've, I've struggled a lot as many of us have, but I, I mean, I was homeless. I was on welfare for almost a decade and yeah. and decided I wanted a different life and got an MBA from Harvard University ultimately. And when people, when I first stopped living in the back of my car and I went to the welfare office for the first time, they said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go to Harvard. And they laughed at me, yeah. just like all these entrepreneurs who start businesses and all those haters are laughing at them, telling them 90% of you are going to fail. You're wasting your time, right? Yeah. You know, Elon Musk says, why do we throw baby showers and wedding bridal showers? Why don't we throw entrepreneurship showers, right? Why don't we, when someone says, well, let's start, I'm starting a business. Why don't we just throw money at them and say, yes, go, go do it. But we don't do that. Yeah. We have the opposite reaction. And, you know, that just kind of exacerbates that. So you stay stoic by acknowledging that in, that negotiation is inherently emotional and you start being very curious about how you get triggered with different emotions at different points in time. And so you'll hear me talk about curiosity a lot, but the first thing is you have to be curious about you to know exactly when, like I, I know I'll meet the person, I'll go, if I was across the table from this person, this person has a triggering personality for me. What does that mean to me? How do I manage that? How do I keep my emotions 
in check. Yo, that's super huge. Let's say hi to everyone who's on live really quick. Right now, we're talking about how to master the art of negotiation with Christine McKay. So if you are watching live, make sure you share, comment, ask questions, and like the video so we can get hooked up with the algorithms. We are on the right side on YouTube if you want to comment. We are below on Facebook, and if you're on any other of the other platforms, we don't even know where you engage at, but I'm sure you do. Just make sure you engage. Um, everything you said just resonated with me, Christine, because um, my coach and mentor, Ed Rush, taught me, you know, you the first one, the one who's speaking the most in the negotiation is the one losing. And so a lot of times I get on the phone with business coaches and, 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 and uh, event planners and um, one thing they'll do is they'll ask me like, well, how much do you charge? And they throw me that ball and then I go, because <laughs> I do want to close the deal, but at the same time, I don't want to lose positioning. So when they throw me the hot ball, I go, well, it depends on the location, how much people and what you're trying to accomplish. So you tell me what's your budget. And then I throw it back to them and then I shut up <laughs> and I literally, and I want to say more and I want to, I want to justify and I'm literally listening in my head every single time. Um, do you have any strategies to to be quiet in those moments? Um, I actually sometimes I'll if I'm feeling I'll do an exercise sometimes when I'm speaking where I'll have somebody ask a question in a small group, like four or five or six people. Mm -hmm. And then the person asking the question cannot speak for sometimes three minutes, depending. Um, and I apologize if you could hear my puppy. I just got a new puppy on Saturday and she's sitting here tearing up paper in my office. So I apologize if you can hear her. Um, but sometimes, you know, and it's so funny when I, when people, when I give people that exercise, there are certain t people who like, after 15, 20 seconds of silence, they're practically jumping across the table going, answer me, answer me. And so, I mean, sometimes I'll get anxious about um, wanting to respond and I'll actually sit on my hands um, or I'll put my, I'll actually cross my fingers as a way of reminding me. So I give myself a physical reminder that I need to sit down and shut up. Now, when my children were young, that using our fingers, crossing our fingers like this was the way that we made sure that we didn't interrupt each other when we were having a family conversation. If somebody wanted to say something, then they just crossed their fingers and kind of put, put it up in the air so that we knew, oh, okay, this one wants to say something after this one's done. Mm -hmm. And so I still, I still do that. I don't necessarily do it and raise my hands, but I like to give myself a physical reminder because listening is actually a full body activity. Yeah. Um, it's, it's more, it's not just, it's, it's critically important that we listen to the words and we give space to our counterparts to speak their words, but that's not all they're communicating with. And that's a really important distinction to think of too, is that a lot of communication is nonverbal. It's in the tone. It's in the style that somebody has, what they wear, the cologne or perfume that they wear, how they walk, how they sit. All of those things are communicating things, whether they carry, you know, uh, you know, a sleek piece of, you know, technology that they use for all their, their, their stuff, or if they carry stacks of paper, yeah. all of those things communicate something. Um, but in the moment, Try to give yourself a physical reminder to to keep your mouth shut because yeah. that's what you need to do. Yeah. Um, my 
one of my goals is to uh, roll up uh, fragmented industry and hopefully when a bull market comes back, uh, sell it to a writ or go public. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing I was doing when I was doing my homework on entrepreneurship and I'm like, how come all these students go to business school and they don't build big, good businesses or they don't make a lot of money? Then I noticed your school, people who went to that business school did well. And I said, what's the difference? And I looked at the curriculums and there was one class that was different than all of them. And that was what you got into, which was mergers and acquisitions. And so I bought the book, uh, How to Buy a Small Business. And mm -hmm. that book changed my life. It's mm. changed my life. So talk about um, the 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 um talk about mergers and acquisitions and how actually buying a business and taking it from there can be much more lucrative than just building your own oh it absolutely can i mean i still do a lot of uh m a related activity i'm in the middle of a couple of deals now um because i mean a lot of times the the challenge with um starting your business and building it is that you don't know all the mistakes that you're about to make and you're going to make a lot of them and you also don't know how to fix them but when you're buying somebody else's business they've already made a bunch of mistakes mm -hmm. and it's much easier to look at somebody else's business and see where those mistakes are and pinpoint how you are going to fix them which is one of the reasons why M&A can be a lot of fun because especially if you have an underperforming company that you're looking to buy which you would look to buy an underperforming company and find ways that you you are going to add value to it um, that's exciting to be able to to turn an organization around if it's kind of if it's faltering or to grow it um, is just those those it's just it's just a lot of fun and because you've got some of the hard knocks put behind you because somebody else did that work for you yeah. you're able to take advantage of what they've invested both in terms of real equity as well as sweat equity yeah. and then you're able to build upon it exactly and well you know a lot of my uh friends who don't really know entrepreneurship want to know why someone will pay me five ten fifteen twenty thousand to coach them on their business and the thing is when you already have legion when you already have an audience when you already have money coming in it's so much easier to get those person a win and so if you already if you buy a business that already has a business go going that's making a million it's easy to grow it's easier to grow those business with small little distinctions where if you didn't grow the bit if they're just starting out those little things wouldn't work and a quick example is i had a, a lady who made beanies for cancer patients and i you know i asked her i said where are the leads for this business coming in she's like what are leads and i'm like the people who come in and buy from you where do they come from she's like oh they go to the website and they put their name in this little box and she's like they call it an opt-in box and i'm like yes i know what an opt-in box is and i'm like so all of your traffic comes from here and i looked at the website and she had a she had a million dollar business and i said well what is this box converting at when they when they come to the website she's like i don't know i said go find out she came back and it was converting at one percent now i knew that uh i can make an opt-in box that can convert from eight to ten percent 
Now she mm. had a million dollar business with an opt-in box, so all of her leads coming in, and they it was converting at one percent. So I said, "What's going to happen if this box converts at let's just say five percent?" She looked and she went, "My business will go from one million to five million. I said, "Exactly." I said, "We're going to change just this page," and she ended up after she changed the page converting at eight percent. So she went from a one million to an eight million business, and I didn't charge her any money because she was a friend. But simple things like that can get us Mm. a big win. And that is why that is the value of working with a business that is already established. So I just want to tell that story real quick. But let's talk about negotiation. That's a great that's a great that's a great story. A little great story. Little percentages. And that's the that is the beauty of M&A, because it is those small changes. I mean, there's a reason why private equity does what it does. Yep. Right. They go come in, they buy something, they make small t- incremental changes and then they sell it. Ideally, um, you know, in their one in 10 hit ratio, they, they sell it and they make they make a fortune off of it. Um, you know, they get some lemons in that process, too. But that's the whole benefit. And then you trial and error that and, and the more businesses you buy, the more you realize what are those small tweaks that I can make that yield big returns. Yeah. And so then you start applying those, the more businesses that you buy. So huge. Now teach us how to negotiate. We're going into a room and we want to negotiate maybe someone buying something from us. Is there a system? Is it a feeling? Is it just, you're just blessed with it. What what do we have to look for in preparing and where do we start? So the most important thing for people to realize is that negotiation is not what I call a point in time event. You don't go to a negotiation mm-hmm. because a negotiation is a process. Okay. And 70% of that process is spent in preparation. So before you ever end up at a meeting or on a call, there's a lot of work that you should have done before you even get to that that meeting, that first negotiation, so to speak. So the first thing is you've got to be absolutely clear about what it is that you want. Now that sounds very, very simple. But when I when I do presentations, I ask people, if, if you think about buying a car, if you, especially if you live in the United States or in Canada, where most adults have bought a car at least one at one point in their time, in their lifetime, it's like, what are the things that you care about? So people talk about and talk about the make and the model. They talk about reliability. They talk about gas mileage. They talk about all these, these things, mm-hmm. but do they want to buy it today or are they willing to wait for it? Now, nobody thinks about that, but that actually drives economic value, both for the buyer as well as for the seller. That's a very big distinction. So when I say get clear about what it is that you want, I mean, explore all the possibilities. So just like I said, you need to be curious about yourself in negotiation and what triggers you, how you work, how you interact with different types of people. Mm -hmm. You also have to be curious about the situation in which you are negotiating and you have to study what that situation is. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm in the, one of my deals is a cannabis company in, um, not in California, but in a different, different state. And so I've spent, I've spent weeks, analyzing the cannabis industry from all the way down to from kind of 
what states have what what where different states are at different steps of the process who buys cannabis who buys cbd versus who buys recreational how's the mix of generation what's the product backs basket looking like and how has that changed how's COVID impacted it what's the impact of retail on medicinal versus delivery versus courier and i've like broken all of these things out because i have to be really curious about the situation so that i could determine what it is that I really want out of that situation. Yeah. Um, and then you've got to be curious about your counterpart. It's great for you to know what you want, but it, is it doable for your counterpart? I walked in one time a while ago, a few, couple of years ago, a few years ago, and I my husband's car had been wrecked. I just didn't like mine. And so we went to the car dealership and I had done all my research uh -huh. and I was like, I'm going to see if I can buy two cars for the price of one, two brand new cars for the price of one. Yeah. And in all my analysis, I determined that that was actually could be under these circumstances in which I was buying a really good deal for the counterpart and a good deal for the dealership. And so I presented that as a deal. I was wrong on inventory holding costs. And so I made an adjustment of $5,000 to my offer, but uh -huh. we bought two brand new cars for the price of one plus $5,000 and drove them off the lot that day. And in order to do that though, and it's true in business and I have countless business examples of the same thing, you have to be really clear on what it is that you want. What do you want? How are you going to use it? and 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 what kind of and figuring all of those kind of things and what's important to you out of that starting so that's the that's with the, first. the end in mind exactly exactly and so that's those the, that's that is the most important thing because and that's where 70 percent of your time is spent in preparing for the negotiation is understanding what those three that curiosity about yourself the situation and your counterpart yeah. and really trying to explore that. Yeah. So when you, before you, so pre preparation, you know, everyone mm -hmm. has the will to win, but they don't have the will to prepare to win, but knowing exactly what you want going into the deal, do you start with asking for way more than you really want it? Like that they say, is that true? Um, and then you just kind of have a point that you won't go under. How does, how does that work? How do you think about that? So I am, so there are a lot of things about negotiation that um, kind of has frustrated me over time and Hollywood has exacerbated this and, yeah. and certain personality types have exacerbated it too. That there's this kind of notion that negotiation is a game, that it's, you know, you got to go in to win, um, the win-win. The and Harvard and I had, when I was there, we had conversations about this all the time. My philosophy is stop trying to win your negotiations, just yeah. period. Um, negotiation is a conversation about a relationship. Yeah. And you cannot win a relationship, but you can get more value out of it. And in business, the majority of our negotiation conversations are about that relationship. Now, there are certain situations in which things are transactional and transactional negotiations have a slightly different bent to them. They can be more haggle driven. They can be more win lose driven. They're Sometimes there are very few parameters or elements that you're negotiating, and they often are driven almost entirely by price and no need to have longer term relationships. 
But for the majority of business relationships, we hear people in marketing and sales all the time say that the best customer is the customer they already have, or you got to get a customer for a lifetime. But we don't negotiate that way. We treat those relationships as still as if they're transactional instead of creating opportunities to explore the possibilities of what that relationship looks like. And one of the things that people, mistakes I see people making is they try to start with no in their negotiations. And my philosophy, I mean, I've been married, I just had my 28th wedding anniversary. And, you know, if my husband approached me with a starting from no position, we wouldn't have gotten very far. And so, and in business, if we're trying to build these lifetime relationships and these long-term relationships where we're both successful, then we start with yeses and we, we find, we ask really great questions that get us to those yeses. Yeah. So you said something huge that probably just, just came out regular. You can't Mm -hmm. win a relationship, but you can get more value out of it. That is, is I'm definitely going to implement that. Um, so, you know, yeah, there are these personalities that, that teach that they're cutthroat. Um, I read in a Brian Tracy book once, like he would say, this is, this is my last like offer. I'm walking away. I'm walking away. And they would be like, well, we're, yeah, we're not doing that. And he would literally storm out and then leave. And <laughs> he said, just storm out, leave, don't come back. And then he would come back and be like, all right, I'll take the deal. Like all this stuff that were just like hyperbolic things that that people teach to do. It's just like, I'm not doing that, you know? You know, I think that for me, I started my negotiation career in Southeast Asia. And that is a very American cowboy kind of style and way to behave at the negotiation table. Mm -hmm. And so when you start, when you learn negotiations outside of the United States as an American, Mm -hmm. especially as a woman, because in Southeast Asia, when I started in the early 1990s, women did not work in business. And if they worked in a company at all, the most they were were secretaries in the vast majority of cases. So it was very unusual to have a woman in the negotiation to begin with. Um, And so I couldn't do those kind of tactics. They didn't, they wouldn't work for me and they don't work for women today. And there's, uh, I read a study just long ago that for a woman who tries that in a salary negotiation, she's Uh less likely to achieve what she wants than her male counterpart is because there's a different perception about women. And so you know, I had to take a different approach. I dye my hair funky colors. Yeah. Um, this is actually really tame for me. But one of the reasons why I do it is because it's a pattern interrupt for people. They're not sure what to think of me when they see me with red or green or purple hair, yeah. you know, and I'm okay with that. It's a way for that me to get everybody off their toes yeah. um, versus kind of them kind of putting me in a box because yeah. as soon as they see me, they're like, wait, okay, that's, now, what box do I do? I put her in the absolutely out of her mind crazy box or <laughs> what box do I put her in? Right. And yeah. I'm and I'm good with that. It became a really successful, useful tool for me to be able to to to, to do that as for me, something that I've le- been able to leverage. But those kind of those kind of and I hear, you know, I hear, you know, 
there's all sorts of tricks and tactics that people do. But I find that what has been most successful for me in my many decades of doing this Mm -hmm. is to be honestly, authentically transparent when I can be. Now, there are things that you cannot always share and there are things that you don't always want to share. You can't share the deepest, darkest, you know, inner workings of your company. There's intellectual property involved, competitive information. You're not going to disclose that. But I have no problem walking into a negotiation and saying, look, I'm telling you, this is what I can do. This is what I can do. Here it is. Now they, because most, most people go into a negotiation, not only afraid to ask for what they want, but they also go into it, not trusting their counterpart. They think their counterpart is out to get them. I don't feel that way. I believe that most, most all of the, I'm, I can think in all my years, I can think of three or four negotiations that I've ever been in where at the end of it, I went, that counterpart was truly out to get me, right? Out of thousands of negotiations, right? And so if you go in trusting them and it's, you know, and you you put your emotion, going back to your use of the word stoic, you put your emotion not to the side because you need to acknowledge it. But when somebody behaves in a way that feels aggressive to you or makes you you react and you're uncomfortable or you feel insecure, the first thing to do is not to look at the counterpart to say, oh, my gosh, that person is a whatever fill in the blank. The first person to look at is yourself and say, whoa, what just happened there? I, I felt that that didn't feel good to me. What triggered that reaction in me? Was it how something was said? Was it the words that was some that were said? But what was it? Make it a moment to self-analyze and to really look inward because most of the time, your reaction, that's on you. That's not on them. They probably, in many cases, they'll have blurted something out and they didn't even think anything of it. They weren't thinking about how you were going to react to it. They were thinking about how they were trying to convey it. And that's one of the challenges in negotiation is making sure you give each other the space to have that dialogue about what's working and what's not working, which is why agreeing the process of negotiation up front is also important because then when you come to inevitable conflict, which always happens in any relationship, you have a plan for how you're going to deal with it. And that gives you the ability to have those, those moments. At Harvard, they call it going to the balcony where you give yourself a break. It's like, okay, I got to step away from this. And you might step away for five minutes, five days, five months, I mean, however long it takes, but you sometimes just need to take a step away. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. I wanted to ask just before we go into the red zone here where we ask some fast acting questions, I wanted to ask for me personally, when I you know, reading on M&A and just reading about buying businesses, you know, you might buy for resources, but generally you want to buy for cash flow. And so any smart person would buy Netflix for however many billion, but Netflix has never been profitable. So mm-hmm. without the cash flow there, why are they worth so much money? I've always wondered that. Is it perception? 
Well, you know, actually, it's very interesting. I was just on a, an, I had an event earlier, and this was a, something similar to this came up. Only about t uh, in in most M and A related transactions, um, and I'm citing somebody else's statistics, so I haven't verified the statistic. Yeah. Um, but just based on my own experience, this makes sense to me. But in most transactions, what he suggested was that 90% of the value is in intangible assets, right? So you get, you have a lot of goodwill, your, your reputation, your brand, your marketing, um, mm -hmm. the, your, the, your customer list. It's, it comes down to more than just your, your revenue, more than just your EBITDA, your earnings before interest tax, oh, depreciation, wow. amortization, and more than just your profit, because there's value in your business mm -hmm. that goes beyond that. Yeah. Here's a great example. If you are a company that has been in existence for, for 10 years, yes. but 55% of your customers have all been with you mm -hmm. for those 10 years, What's the value of that relative to another company that's been in existence for 10 years, but their average length, of their lifetime with their customer is under two years? Yeah. You could argue that that, that company that has that longer term relationship, those deeper relationships with their customers is a much more valuable company than somebody that has shorter term relationships and higher turnover in their customer rank, where they have rating rankings, where they have more, more churn. More indwelling profitable. Indwelling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, and then sometimes like there's, there are companies that, you know, some companies just have amazing brands that carry goodwill on the books. That's worth a lot that, you know, if, if Coca-Cola ever became, you know, unprofitable and there was a fire sale, the thing that would sell is Coca-Cola's brand. Thanks. Right. Right. So that's, so, so a lot of, a lot of times it's wrapped up in intangible things that, but that goes to you have to you when you're valuing a company in an M&A situation. Mm -hmm. And I actually made this comment earlier today. I said, look, you know what you pay for the company is less important than the assumptions then go into developing what that price is. Yeah. You know, so somebody comes in and says, I want X price. But what are the assumptions that go into that? Because you'll discover what is good? What what are the goodwill aspects? What are the intangible aspects of that value? Where versus the tangible aspects? What's the revenue? What's the projected growth? All of those kind of things. Yeah. And so it comes down to having really a, a very clear view on what questions you're going to answer to yeah. uncover what what the sources of value are. Okay. So now I get it. I didn't understand that because for me, being someone who's going to be buying their first few, I because I don't have the capital, I have to make sure that the cash flow is there. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm private thinking, basically I'm too small. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not ready for public yet. Well, I mean, but you can find other, you can still buy companies with other people's money. I mean, there are thousands of people out there who want to invest in small, mid-sized companies who don't want to be the ones going out and finding the investment, doing the valuation, negotiating the deal. They want to go out and just say, here's my money, go make it work for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot of those people out there. i give you a secret, Christine. Hmm. Uh, commercial debt. Get the bank. Mm, yep. 
and then that that smaller if they want you to front a lot of there's nothing that says they have to that you have to cover a certain amount but a lot of times they want you to then mm-hmm. I, you know i reach out for those people but um right well leverage buyouts have been long been uh since the 1980s doing you know using debt to buy using a company's existing debt to buy them has been a very successful tactic for okay now for I'm a long time editing this this uh, episode because we can't you're putting too much value out there <laughs> <laughs> you're putting too much value out there but yeah that's that's the goal too it's just i maybe you can help me with this i i've a hard time sourcing uh motivational um Motiva- motivated sellers who are maybe looking to retire who would who would do that is there a mm. secret way of sourcing those people so it is hard and and it's it's hard for a number of reasons i mean they it's they're emotional about it a lot yeah. of times they wanted to s- sell it off to one of their kids or hand it over to their kids and their kids are like i don't want anything to do with this yeah. right the age the workforce is aging the age of small business businesses, especially in more traditional, um, especially trades or uh, manufacturing is older. And um, so, but I, I mean, I, the people I know and work with in that space, they hang out in areas in associations that are focused on small businesses, um, you know, chambers, but also associations that focus on certain industries. So if, let's say you're looking at buying, uh, I don't know, a high tech uh, uh, machining company that manufactures parts, right? They look in, they look in the associations related to that. Um, and so it depends on what industry or if you're trying to do technology, yeah. like um, it depends on the industry, but really kind of association levels. Yeah. There's an organization called the Association for Corporate Growth, which is mid-market. So it's bigger companies. Um, I think they focus more around the 200 to 500 million range. So much bigger. But um, And then you have buying groups where there are, you know, groups of like-minded investors who kind of go out and, you know, they, they source deals as a group and, and people participate in them that way. Yeah. Super smart, super smart. Thank you so much for that. Um, You're welcome. Probably 99% of the people watching don't even know what you just gave, but I know what you just gave. That was <laughs> and I'm actually taking notes. All right, Christine, we're going to get you out of here, but we're going to go into the red zone first where we ask five fast-asking questions that usually are hard for people like me and you to answer. Are you ready? Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, Christine, what is your favorite book and why? My favorite book is Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. The new um, one? Nobody it, no, no, he's okay. So his, that one came out in 2019. He has a brand new one that's about to come out. Um, but yeah, Talking to Strangers, absolutely one of my favorites because um, it book. it's so good. Yeah. I mean, it just really shows that how... What I liked about it is that it it refutes what people think. People people assume that humans are not trustworthy, but what that book shows is that actually people are really trustworthy, and we default to wanting to trust people. And so for me, I'm like, how do we build on that? How do we make that better? And so it was just it's absolutely one of my favorite books of all time. I love him so much. Such a great. I, I I want to meet him. I want him to have. I want him on my show. I want him on my podcast. Oh, you 
better drip I'm camp- throwing that out there <laughs> drip campaign them with 50 million emails ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's su- he's like such a hero to me <laughs> a deep thinker the um oh, this love subject, it. the 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 i think he called it the friends effect where if you watched friends they're without the audio on their facial expressions you wouldn't know exactly what they're talking about but in mm-hmm. real life it doesn't work that way so a lot of times maybe like police officers or just people in general will assume someone's sad or assume they're lying based on their facial expressions because they think facial expressions are based on friends when different communities have different facial yeah. expressions for different things so amazing absolutely you're you're speaking paul ekman's language yeah um, Paul Ekman, he is the father of uh, of facial huh? facial micro expressions. Yeah, he's amazing, amazing yeah. work, amazing research. What uh, is your favorite quote and why, or a quote that you live my, by? Um, a quote I live by is Maya Angelou: mm. "Ask for what you want and expect to get it." Mm. I love it. It's just, that's the thing that I wish I did more when I was earlier in my career and my life was ask for more and expect to get it. It doesn't mean you go out and demand it, but it means that you set an, you set an expectation internally that you are worth what you are asking for, that you, you ask for what it is you want because you're worthy of that. And you are, you've got the value that deserves that and then when you have that mindset then it just puts that intention out in the universe and then it just comes to you yeah um jim Rohn, my the guy who changed my life mm, amazing amazing the setup is so funny he goes um i got a secret to get on anything you want you ready get your notes out ask and he goes end of notes (laughs) (laughs) absolutely true you don't get what you don't ask for that's for sure christine would you rather be loved or respected respected Respected. i had to think about that because i kind of the kind of both you can't Yeah. yeah but respected i don't need to be loved by very many people yeah if you could spend 24 hours with anyone who's ever lived in history who would it be and why? Oh, that's a hard question for me to answer. There's so many people. Oh, I'm going to make the most bizarre response that you, and, and it's only because I'm currently studying her. Um, oh, Chong Isang, mm-hmm. she was the most notorious female pirate in history. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, she was quite the, and she was, she was brutal. Um, she, but she was, she was an unbelievable businesswoman at the same time. And she just, she took her husband's small, uh, army and turned it into a military force to be reckoned with in Asia. And, uh, and I'm just fascinated by a wide variety of, people in history so but i just happen to be reading about her right now so amazing amazing and lastly what does success look like to you success for me is about impact it's about impacting as many people as i possibly can and literally helping them ask for more of what they want and showing them how to get it not just that they not just that they expect to get it but that that i help show them how to get it and that's that's for me what what success is. Yeah. 
All right, Christine, thank you so much for coming on. Where can they find you on any platforms and what are you offering uh, where people can follow up with you? So you can find us at Venn, V-E-N-N, so like a Venn diagram, vennegotiation.com. We are Venn Negotiation on all the major platforms, um, everything from LinkedIn to Twitter to Facebook, Twitch, um, and YouTube. And um, and so you can, you can just hook up with me there. That's the easiest thing. If you go to our website, um, we have a free gift waiting for you and, uh, you can take a quiz to learn your default negotiation style. If you, if you're curious what that is. That is awesome. That is awesome. Thank you so much again, Christine. I am going to email you and talk to you because I would love to pick your brain, uh, about you know, my idea for rolling up that fragmented industry and just mm -hmm. stuff. Um, I'd but, love to, I love that conversation. I'd love yeah. to have that. Cause I'm going to take my business now and automate it to where all I got to do is speak on stages. Cause I love it. And then mm. the end game is roll up, roll up and sell. I need a hundred million. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Again, thank you so much. Thank you for everyone who watched live, even though you were ghost watching and didn't engage. But I see you. Thank you so much for coming on. Make sure you share on every platform. We post on every platform. Look, even even the puppy knows you need to engage. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> thank you guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed making it for you. Till next time. Peace. Thank you. <laughs> This is the Entrepreneur Underdog, business secrets to help doubted entrepreneurs triumph. The Underdog Entrepreneur is where we use fast-acting shortcuts to help underdog entrepreneurs make more money, have a bigger impact, and live a better lifestyle so that they can prove their haters wrong. And now, your host, Roy Red. Roy Red.